Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I uh, have been reading a report from RBC titled The $2 Trillion Transition. And uh, it's about the transition from fossil fuels to um, renewables. And the RBC Economics and Thought Leadership has released this report, and it sets out the economic roadmap for this country. $2 trillion is a lot of money. And where does the money come from? And uh, how, how are we going to come up with $60 billion a year? That's the annual cost. John Stackhouse is Senior Vice President in the Office of the CEO at the Royal Bank of Canada and leads RBC on research and thought leadership on economic, technological, and social change. John, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's a very interesting document, but it leaves me with a lot of questions. Thanks uh, Thanks for reaching out, Roy. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, let me just, first of all, I guess the most fundamental question I ask is, how do you arrive at the $2 trillion cost? And we're looking at this $2 trillion cost, if I understand it correctly, extending from 2021, so this year, is it to 2050 or 2060? It's, it's 2050. So how did you arrive at $2 trillion? Yeah, and it, it, you're absolutely right. It's a big number. None of us can count to $1 trillion, let alone $2 trillion, so it's hard for all of us to get our, our, our heads around it. And in the re- report, we uh, do break it down. It is over you know, close to 30 years, as you uh, say, and it's roughly 2% of GDP. So think of it as 2% of our overall uh, economy. We, we, we got to the number, it's a great question, by sort of calculating the cost of reducing emissions across a variety of sectors. This is not just the oil and gas sector. So how much is it going to cost to increase the amount of electricity that we're going to need for a lot more electric vehicles? How much are we going to need for agriculture to reduce uh, emissions in, uh, in, in the farming sector and, and so on? And that got us to $2 trillion, and then we broke it down to the 60 to $80 billion a year, which, as I say, is about 2% of our economy. And again, that still is a lot of money. Uh, I don't uh, uh, downplay that at all, but it's actually within our, our, our reach, uh, particularly because most of this money is private investment. This is what we can all invest in in our own activities, but also uh, across the economy. So we see this as a really important growth driver, economic growth driver over the next uh, quarter century. It's nowhere near entirely up to government. This is a big private sector opportunity. Right. And I want to talk to you about what your expectations are of Canadians, because I read just one sentence. I don't want to be out of context, but it caught my attention. But let me start with this. So you talked about uh, electrification, and your report says or calls for a national policy on electrification. John, we have a terrible time in this country, even dealing with with each other, with trading with each other from province to province. Coming up with it, we had, it was impossible to, to deliver pipelines at a time when there were not controversial across Canada. So how are we going to come up with a national policy on electrification? What's, what's, what's your vision tell you? Well, you know, you're, you're spot on. Look, Roy, we, we struggled getting through the pandemic, which was life-threatening exactly. to a lot of Canadians. Uh, we struggled to get uh, interprovincial or FedProv cooperation. And yeah, if we can't do it when we have a life-threatening challenge like uh, COVID or a pandemic, how do we do it for a 30-year project for, uh, for climate change? I, t- I totally, totally get it. Uh, we think this is a wake-up call to Canada to say, look, if, if we're serious about climate change, um, let's get beyond the talk. Let's get beyond a bit of the high-mindedness and say, okay, we we, we got to get down to some serious work here. 
if you believe this is, you know, maybe the greatest challenge of our times, which uh, we, we, we try to argue. And if that's the case, it's time for the federal government and provinces to come together on a few uh, or more than a few issues. But electricity is, is at the core of this and say, look, we've got to produce a lot more electricity and we're uh, better off than almost any country in the world in terms of what we can do with hydro, with nuclear, with renewables. How do we go about this uh, over the next quarter century? It's going to take tens of billions of dollars of investment in uh, electrification, uh, maybe hundreds of billions when you, you go out 30 years. Big opportunity for the provinces, but we all have to kind of change our change our approach. We need a, a, a new playbook, and that includes how the provinces deal with each other. So just looking at some uh, some of the key points, I wish I could discuss them all with you, but we haven't got the time. A national, well, we could do it over several interviews, I guess. A national strategy for green skills, long-term commitment to carbon pricing, leveraging climate to enhance U.S. trade, an industrial strategy for carbon capture, utilization, and storage, a national action plan for sustainable agriculture, supercharging electric vehicles, and rapid retrofitting. Then, John, I come to this. This is me now. I find this sentence. The challenge is getting people to change. A low-carbon lifestyle is still more expensive, harder, and less convenient than the status quo. We're dealing with, uh, we had a poll last year that showed that 52% of Canadians are within $200 not being able to pay their monthly bills. Where's the money going to come from? What, what does it mean when you say a low-carbon lifestyle is still more expensive, harder, and less convenient? How much more expensive, how much harder, and how much less convenient? The challenge with any technology change is that it's always more expensive in the early years. And then as it scales and we get uh, better with the technology, we're seeing this with cell phones as a uh, front and center example, it gets cheaper over, uh, over time and gets way easier for us all as, uh, as users. We can't let that slow us down on the climate journey. So we're going to need a lot more public investment in the first years of this transition, including helping consumers uh, adjust to new vehicles, to uh, home retrofits, changing the way you insulate, for instance, or the way you heat or air condition your your, your home. Uh, all that's going to require more public resources. Good news is there's a lot of public resources available right now to help uh, to, to, to help uh, accelerate the, the economic recovery coming out of the pandemic. So we're arguing let's get that money into consumer-facing activities as well as infrastructure. Things like uh, charging stations need to be built uh, across the country. That will reduce the cost for, uh, for consumers and also increase the convenience. Several emails, John, from listeners saying throwing around billions of dollars is, sounds easy, but it's going to be hard on the average person. And there's great interest in what this transition will cost the average person. So I'm going to come back to what I said to you uh, just before the break, just quoting from, uh, from your writing, from the report. The challenge is getting people to change. Okay, so we take that sentence and accept it. A low-carbon lifestyle will still be more expensive, harder, and less convenient than the status quo. So how much more expensive? How much more expensive is it going to be to heat a home or to, um, to, to drive to where we go? Immense country where and it's all spread apart. We, we need to drive, and we don't have the electric vehicle capacity yet. What's the cost going to be? Have you estimated that in the report to the average Canadian family, which is under stress f- fiscally? Yeah, it, 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 it's an excellent point, Roy. And we haven't broken it down to a household level because it depends on how much 
collective spending is focused in the early parts of the transition. If we direct public investment, and there's a lot of uh, public money going into the economy over the next uh, couple of years. But that's the taxpayer, the right? Going that's, again. that's still the taxpayer. I, I, well, it's, it's borrowed from the future, and uh, taxes will pay it back, but we are creating economic growth that allows us to pay down the debt. That's kind of a, a basic principle of economics. So investing in productive activities is a really important way to get the economy going. And we think there is an opportunity here to direct a lot of that money rather than just making it simple transfers or political schemes to invest it into serious projects, uh, especially in infrastructure, that build another quarter century of economic growth. You'll remember before the pandemic, economic growth was a challenge for the uh, for the country. Canada's not alone in that respect. We're an older uh, population, so growth remains a challenge. This is a chance for us to invest in those growth opportunities, as well as in ways that reduce our overall or overall emissions. Of course, there's a question, who, who's going to pay for it? So uh, home heating or transportation, am I going to have to pay more? Actually, you'll end up paying less if you invest in the transition technologies that we've outlined in the report. And there's a way to direct uh, public investment so that that transition is uh, is faster and more seamless. I'll also reiterate that you know the two trillion dollar number is mostly private investment, and as a country, we are sitting on a lot, a lot of savings right now. We, we RBC has estimated there's three hundred billion dollars in surplus savings uh, sitting in bank accounts and uh, similar uh, similar vehicles right now because people are nervous; they don't know where to invest it. This is a chance to create uh, investment opportunities for people to channel some of those savings, get higher returns for companies that are not investing enough in the, the economy. Companies, corporate Canada, same in the U.S., are, are sitting on significant assets that they need to leverage and put into those productive investments, whether it's carbon pipelines in the, uh, the oil sector or electric charging infrastructure right uh, right across the country or building retrofits uh, for our hospitals and uh, universities as well as uh, m- most of our homes is a really good way to invest some of that uh, surplus savings that will generate more returns through the uh, through the decades ahead. okay so I'm assuming that the uh, investment would be voluntary uh, yes I'm not sure what, uh, if there's well not pol- it wouldn't be government policy where we're going to we need this money and so we're going to tax you more for this particular no, uh, no, so service or good right you know because that happens too that's basic economics too no, absolutely. So, so there are some governments that may see a tax and spend opportunity here. Mm-hmm. Let we me ask you, John. Let me get let me get onto this. The International yep. Energy Agency this year said fossil fuel development has to end for the world to reach its global net zero objective by 2050, and that's your time frame. That doesn't sound to me like the world is completely voluntarily on board with the idea of net zero by 2050. And in the same report, the IEA wrote that in 2050, if all the official moves to renewables development are met, the world will still be using 75 million barrels of oil per day. How do we put that together? We're going to rely on fossil fuels for many, many more years. We think that's a really important uh, message to share with Canadians. We're not shutting down fossil fuels anytime soon. Most of us rely 
on oil and natural gas significantly. And if you try to move away from those fuels too quickly, you see what's happening in uh, Europe right now. It's happening in China as well, where there's really bad disruptions that cost uh, people their jobs, that cost, uh, that send prices way up on things like natural gas. So we're arguing for a more thoughtful transition that does take time rather than try to do things suddenly and really disrupt significant parts of the economy as well as uh, our own our our own lives. So yes, we're going to rely on fossil fuels for years to come. We also think Canadian producers of fossil fuels, uh, whether it's oil or natural gas, can be among world leaders in reducing the emissions of those products. There's nothing inherently wrong, uh, say, with natural gas. Our concern is with the greenhouse gas emissions associated with that. Well, there's technologies like carbon capture that allow you to capture uh, many of those gases that come out from the production of natural gas or oil, for instance, puts it right. back into the ground. Okay, so, so, that, so this question, so this question, sorry to interrupt, but I'm looking at the clock. I want to get as many questions in for you as I can. I, absolutely. If, we, if we're looking at the cooperation of the, uh, the fossil fuel manufacturer, the, the producers, RBC and five other major Canadian banks joined the UN Net Zero Banking Alliance, led by Mark Carney, former Bank of Canada governor. Uh, Does this mean that RBC will restrict lending to Canadian oil and natural gas projects like exploration and pipeline construction? And if it does, how can you get the cooperation of these these businesses that uh, that need loans and need lending? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means that we can have some serious conversations with our clients about their own net zero strategies and use the methodologies that uh, the Net Zero Banking Alliance that you mentioned uh, allow for that allow us to work with uh, global banks, be it Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, developing the methodologies and the data sets that allow us to share our progress with, uh, with the public as well as with our shareholders. So the oil industry, great uh, great case in point. The oil sands producers uh, in Canada, the five or six biggest ones, have a very serious strategy to get to net zero. Uh, we see a big opportunity there to help finance that. Uh, and I think other banks do as well, and we'll work out the details with them uh, over, over time. But that's the kind of work that this alliance uh doesn't give us permission to do. We don't need permission to do it. It allow, gives us uh, some methodologies to share our progress with uh, with the public when we work with, say, the oil producers on their own path to net zero and help show the public how they're doing. So if I understand this correctly, we have a long way to go in a fairly short period of time. Uh, yes, I think that is the, the, the key message of the climate transition. We have a long way to go in a short period of time. And as Canadians, we've, we've made a lot of promises over, over the decades and have not lived up to those promises. And this is a good moment for us to say, okay, how, how do we do better uh, in the coming years and coming decades than maybe we've done uh, to date? And that, of course, brings politics and political parties in the, into the debate. But we'd have to have another hour to get into that. In an open letter to heads of state attending the United Nations General Assembly, the International Chamber of Shipping, ICS, and other industry groups warned of a, quote, global transport system collapse, end quote, if governments do not restore freedoms of movement to transport workers 
and give them priority to receive vaccines recognized by the World Health Organization. The global supply chains are beginning to buckle as two years' worth of strain on transport workers take their toll. That's part of the letter. And the letter goes on also to say, and it was signed by the International Air Transport Association, the International Road Transport Union, and the International Transport Workers Federation, which together represents 65 million transport workers, goes on to say all transport sectors are also seeing a shortage of workers and expect more to leave as a result of the poor treatment millions have faced during the pandemic, putting the supply chain under greater threats, end quote. Let's talk about this. So uh, with us is Bruce Burroughs. Mr. Burroughs is the president and CEO of the uh, Chamber of Marine Commerce, which is based in Ottawa. It's uh, binational. And uh, um, it's, uh, Mr. Burroughs, thanks for coming on. This is Canada and the U.S. that you, uh, that you represent, right? Yes, it is. Uh, thank you, and it's a pleasure to be on your show today. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. We spoke yesterday with uh, the CEO of a hedge fund, Yes. And and they managed some $4.5 billion, and he expressed great concern about the situation with the global supply chain and didn't see the situation coming to a quick conclusion with so much uh, logistical challenge in front of us. What is your sense, first of all, just generically, what's your sense of the state the uh, the global supply chain is in? Well, that's a great question, and it has improved, I would say. Now, that's probably the good news. The bad news may be that it's going to continue for some time. Um, and, you know, you have to remember transportation is a derived demand sport. We just facilitate the movement of goods when, when we're told to by our customers. And for years and years, we've been investing in efficiencies to squeeze out kinks and make supply chains smooth. Just in time, you know, it's a great example. And then suddenly COVID hits. You know, remember last year in 2020, there were extreme periods of no demand for many goods. And then suddenly uh, there were big surges of demand. And, you know, that whole sort of approach to moving goods is so foreign to us now. And uh, and added to that, on the consumer side, you know, governments have continued to pump an unprecedented amount of money into consumers' hands, and, you know, they can't go on holidays, so what are they going to do? They're going to go online, buy some garden furniture, put it on the outdoor deck, and, and that's where they're going to spend their time. And, and so it's really a perfect storm of supply chain disruption right now. Um, you know, 90% of goods are transported by ocean and inland seas. Most things uh, right down to, to your underwear uh, arrive uh, in part by ship. And seafarers, uh, getting to your point earlier, you know, are the ones who really make this happen. And um, we have uh, some 1.5 million seafarers around the world uh, over the last year who have been working very, very hard, uh, long days, um, and don't forget they're they're in a congregate setting, working for months and months at a time. Yeah. They don't have the luxury, you know, to, to get off a ship at the end of the day and yeah. head home and clock in at their pharmacy to get a vaccine. Right. Um, and, and in many cases, they've been not allowed off their ships when they've gone to port, right? When they, absolutely. When, when they've docked. Ports have, have put a ban on them, some ports. Um, you know, we had as many as 400,000 around the world not able to, to, to get home. Uh, about half of that number, 200,000, are, are still at sea, so it's improved, but still quite a few not able to get home. Yeah. Uh, it really, uh, I think it really drives home how significantly important shipping is. 
to the supply chain, when you tell us that of all the goods that are moved in the world, 90% of them will be on the ocean at some point. Yep. Exactly. No, it's, it's critically important. It's, um, I mean, the good news, it's, it's probably the, grass, the best green option, the best uh, GHD um, platform to move goods compared to the other modes. That's the good news. But the problem is that, you know, this demand supply problem we're, we're trying to manage now is, is really, really tough. Mm-hmm. And, and governments around the world have really dropped the ball, to be frank. Uh, they really don't have an appreciation of how interconnected the, the logistics chains are. And, and how is your well that's scary that's scary to hear yeah it, it is and, and to your point how dependent we all are on on, on a global marine workforce yeah because we, we are we're in fact counting on the people we elect who make promises to be able to resolve significant issues and we've seen how well they've done that with the pandemic yeah. uh, in many cases they've just dropped the ball on that as well but but here you are you know they tell us they will tell us that they'll, they'll be able to manage the supply chain uh, crisis. I have no confidence in them. Now, having said that, I, I, I do give a bit of a nod to our Canadian governments. They have been a bit better. Um, they have worked, you know, we worked very hard to make sure that, that the marine sector was declared essential at the beginning of COVID. That took some time, and there, there was quite a lack of coordination between the federal government and the provincial governments in this regard, unfortunately. Um, but we finally did succeed, and uh, that was important for us because we move a lot of, we fly a lot of our crews, uh, just you know, uh, looking at the Canadian context. We have crews that live in Vancouver, that live in St. John's, Newfoundland, and we fly them into, let's say, central Canada, where the, the core of the Canadian hometown fleet, you know, the ships have the maple flying off the stern, that's where they tend to operate, I'll give you a domestic example. And it took some time, but, but we have had pretty good mobility now in Canada compared to the rest of the world. So we've worked hard with the airlines, the provincial governments, the federal government, and it's finally sort of working. But we're still having an issue getting vaccinated, unfortunately. Mr. Burrow is telling us 90% of goods, 90% of goods that, you know, that we all use, that we all see, they're on the ocean at some point or another. And some of the container ships are massive. Just think of that ship, that he, the Evergreen, that blocked the Suez Canal. It took days to get that thing to move so they could get it through the canal. That gave us, I think, a bit of a perspective, didn't it, Mr. Burroughs, on, on the, uh, just the, the, just the giant nature of the, uh, of, of the operation. When you look at a ship that size and getting stuck in the Suez Canal, that said to me, wow, there's a lot. this is a major, major issue. It, it was quite extraordinary. I think a bit of a wake-up call for many Canadians when they saw that photograph flashed across the front pages of their uh, feed, uh, or, or on their newspapers, and it's a bit like a, uh, you know, a major downtown office tower on its side floating in the water, and that's how big these things are, 15,000, 14,000, uh, 20-foot equivalent to units, we call them, so like a 20-foot box. So, yeah, these are monster ships, and uh, when, as they sort of snake through canals like the Suez or the Panama, you know, there's not a lot of room to, to maneuver. Mm-hmm. Um, when we put our ship through uh, the canal system here in the St. Lawrence, uh, you know, they're typically uh, 78 feet wide with only a, a foot extra on either side. So wow. we're, we're really trying <laughs> to maximize the use of our waterways. 
these days for, for good reason. Yeah, so anybody who's ever tried to park a rowboat knows how difficult that, exactly. that's, going, that's yeah. going to be. Let's talk a bit about Please tell us what the situation is, is in Canada and the United States. Mm-hmm. What's the situation in, in this country and the U.S. like? Um, and I would imagine they're vastly different as far as uh, ports, um, ocean ports, and Great Lake ports are concerned and moving goods is concerned. Sure. Well, I think um, uh, let's let's talk the international situation first, where, where sure. uh, you know some of the press coverage is being quite dire, and um, both from a price perspective and and from a, a service perspective, you know, a box uh, coming from China to a typical West Coast port would normally take forty forty five days uh, from from uh, origin to des- final destination, and now it's taking seventy five days. You know, that's an extra month almost. In delivery time and you know we're still seeing production facilities continuing to face waves of COVID outbreaks in, in China for example and the Chinese are very swift to, to lock down their their plants uh, you know when there's a big outbreak of, of factory workers and so suddenly out of production is a whole large plant uh, they've had a number of energy disruptions because of gas costs and availability that are heating these plants and lighting these plants and the and so that caused a rotating, you know, sort of system of shutdowns. That's not helping. Um, uh, and then on the pricing side, you know, you're seeing boxes that might have cost three, four thousand dollars per box to ship uh, over a long haul, now costing fifteen, twenty thousand per box. You know, five, eight hundred percent increase. Wow. Which, you know, it's definitely inflationary. Yeah, and that gets passed on eventually. Gets passed on to the person at the end of the chain, the consumer. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, going back to my analogy of, uh, of deck chairs in the garden, you know, they unfortunately are, are uh, you know, low value, high volume, and so a higher container cost impacts those sorts of things in your house. Uh, on the other hand, it, it's not so um, significant when it comes to high value goods, you know, electronics, uh, iPhones, you know, you, you might not really see much of an increase there because you can sort of spread it out somewhat more. Well, where would you think, I don't know if you can answer this question or not, yep. but where would you think we should be looking for or where should we expect to find that there's a supply issue, a supply shortage? Well, I, I, I mentioned, uh, you know, things, uh, things such as um, electronics coming out of Asia. And, you know, we, we hear about chips, of course, that... Uh, are manufactured in, in various parts of Asia. Right. We've had a lot of plant shutdowns there. So, you know, if you want to go out and buy a car, um, if you're lucky to get the car, it may not come quite equipped to, to what the order spec was. <laughs> you know, my wife yeah. ordered a car in the spring, and it came with the wrong trim on it, but that's all they had. Yeah, I, just, um, I just found out that replacing a garage door, after you place the order, it's five months before they can do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I had a problem with my stove this year, and uh, you know the the electronic motherboard went off, and it took me two months to get a new one. So, so do you expect? With your, you have the, your finger on the pulse of this, Canada, United States, and you're a member, a board member of the International Chamber of Shipping, which it was the vehicle through which this letter to the UN was sent. Yeah. Uh, do you have a sense of an improving? situation with the supply chain or what are you what are you urging governments to do you're the experienced person they should listen to you well we're, what are you we're, urging them to do there's a few things that can be done and, and some of them are being taken i think the the private sector can can get going and has has gotten going and, and is doing some more nearshoring. i just came back from a business trip down in the caribbean dominican republic i had an excellent tour of uh, 
of one of their new logistics hubs, and they're sourcing materials in uh, much closer to the DR and then creating a hub and, and pushing them out. So, you know, there's only 25% perhaps increase there in some of the container pricing and, and much quicker turnarounds because they're nearshoring, and particularly with medical supplies, medical equipment, um, electric equipment, some of the higher value goods, um, I think you're going to continue, continue to see some more nearshoring. I think, you know, using different routes, I mean, um, uh, you know, Canadian Tire and other companies, they're all getting quite creative to, you know, lease a whole ship and and uh, and uh, sort of take matters into their own own hands. They're chartering ships increasingly. Um, the Great Lakes St. Moritz uh, sort of gateway and, and system is a great alternative route. We have capacity. We're starting to move um, uh, sort of short sea uh, coastal shuttle trading with containers for the first time to help take some of the pressure off the the main uh, supply chains, and that's that's helping. Um, you know, so there is there is lots we can do. I think you know your point about seafarers, as I said, it has improved somewhat. We're down to maybe two hundred thousanders that are still. I hate the word to use stuck at sea, but but they are somewhat um, uh, restricted still, um, and we're trying to push hard to get uh, vaccinations in place. I hired a just in a little example here. In Ontario, I hired a firm under contract to um, bring nurses down to my ship when they're traveling through the lock system near Welland, Ontario, um, and and to to give uh, workers the job. But you know, I ran into all sorts of bureaucratic nonsense with the provincial government, and I couldn't get the supply. Embarrassingly enough, a lot of our crews were being given the jabs on the return from U.S. ports because the U.S. had lots of vaccine, yeah. and they're quite willing to, to to give it to us. So. We, we still are, and it's getting a little bit better. Um, you know, we do have uh, more and more vaccines available to international right. seafarers uh, with health teams in BC and Quebec, for example, and they are in those places. The Canadian Medical Association has come down hard on Saskatchewan. Less than a month after the CMA challenged both Saskatchewan and Alberta to an opt-in, all-hands-on-deck approach to fight covid well, today the CMA is focusing on Saskatchewan and calling on the Premier, Scott Moe, who's a frequent guest on this program, to increase vaccination rates by mandatory vaccination in healthcare settings. What's the CMA's view as well? I'm curious about Quebec pulling back from its vaccine mandate deadline date for healthcare workers. They did that just recently. And we also have a situation, particularly announced in the province of Ontario just uh, two days ago, where capacity restrictions for restaurants and gyms and so on were eliminated, largely eliminated. Dr. Catherine Smart is the president of the Canadian Medical Association, and she joins us on the Roy Green Show again. This is a weekly thing, Dr. Smart. We're going to get you a we're going to get you a nameplate and a parking space. Well, thank you. I'd appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Good to talk to you again. You as well. So the message to Saskatchewan and to Premier Mo is what, based on what you're seeing coming out of the province? Absolutely. Things are at an all-time crisis level in Saskatchewan. You know, this week we heard from an ICU physician there that they've actually converted a laundry room into a place to deliver care. Their ICUs are totally over capacity. They're having to ship patients to Ontario. The military's arrived. Yet with all that happening, we still are not seeing Premier Mo willing to put in restrictions around how many people can gather together, which is very 
clearly what's driving the COVID numbers in that province. So the whole situation there is is a really a total crisis, and and the lack of the government's willingness to move forward with more public health strategies um, is really hard to comprehend at this point. So you call it, I mean, it's generally called, euphemistically called now, circuit breakers. So the idea of cutting back on mingling in restaurants and gyms and uh, indoor facilities you want to see that stopped for a period of time in Saskatchewan or how would you like that approached the data coming out of Saskatchewan is also is actually showing that the biggest issue seems to be private gatherings that's what's really driving the rise in case counts throughout the province um, and that's why the there's been a lot of talk about limiting the number of people who can gather together in private residences. So that idea of trying to bubble with maybe one or two other families, limiting contacts uh, outside of your own home, that is what the Medical Officer of Health has been talking about, and that's what their data is showing. Um, so that's one thing that would really be helpful. And then, of course, limiting unvaccinated people gathering together, which they're doing through their vaccine passport program, is another approach which is in place. It's difficult to persuade people in October of 2021, not to gather. You know that. So how do you get around that? Oh, yeah. Or is that, that's well, the politician's it, responsibility, right? <laughs> well, it is, but I, I, I mean, I appreciate that. I think we're all tired of the pandemic. That's clear. But I think we also have to realize, you know, we're getting towards, we hope, the end in sight of this. You know, we're optimistic vaccines are about to be improved, approved for kids 5 to 11. That's going to make a big difference. You know, we're continuing to work on increasing vaccination rates with various programs that are incentivizing people to become vaccinated. So, you know, we're kind of in that that home stretch. Um, but what's happening right now in Saskatchewan is their entire healthcare system's collapsing because of the unwillingness to just hold on a little bit longer with some of these public health strategies uh, that will allow us to safely reopen. Um, so I, I think it's really people have to think about their responsibilities to the people around them because right now with the approach they've taken in that province, they, they've really driven their healthcare system to collapse. Uh, it's no longer able to meet the needs of the citizens in that province. It's essentially closed down to any sort of elective surgeries, even extremely urgent ones, you know, cancer surgeries, cardiac surgeries, brain surgeries, children's procedures. They're having to fly people out of the province, and they're really only a few people away from having to triage who even has the option of receiving life-saving care. So to me, I think asking people to, you know, just for a little while stay in smaller groups, I don't think is unreasonable. Yeah, again, the the trick is going to be to persuade people to, to do this. And, uh, you know, persuasion as far as vaccines are concerned, I understand that. I'm double vaccinated, and I've talked about it a great deal on the air, and received some considerable, consider, uh, well, how am I going to put this, challenges for the way I've approached it. But that's my business. It's my concern. The, what I hear in response is, then it's my business not to be vaccinated, and if I don't want to be. Tough for the political reality or the politicians and the premiers, and I'm not a big fan of politicians generally, uh, to, to get around that. Look at what's happening in the province of Quebec, where they've had the vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. But Premier Legault, looking at the reality on the ground, said, I guess we have to move the, the, the mandate date back, which they did. I wonder if they're going to do it again. Is it, does it really work? That's the question. That has to concern you, right? Well- it, oh, it absolutely does concern me. I think, you know, what's going on in, in Quebec is, is complex. I mean, what it reflects as well is just the absolute crisis we have in terms of having enough healthcare workers in our country. You know, if we're right. so That's desperate the first for healthcare professionals, right, that, that if, you know, 
some of them choosing not to be vaccinated and therefore not being able to work is going to put the province into a total crisis. What it tells us is there's no depth there. We don't have enough people, uh, which we know that to be the case, and that is a huge issue. Um, but I think it is clear that vaccine mandates are working and, and things that are, you know, we've got the kind of carrot and stick approach happening, right? Of course, on one hand, our first objective is to educate people, encourage people, answer people's questions, and and have people choose to be vaccinated. But it's very clear that some people are being compelled by other things like vaccine certificates or passports, you know, travel regulations and things where people have realized, okay, I guess if I don't get vaccinated, I'm really just not going to be able to get on with my life. And it is driving up vaccine rates. So I think we have to have both approaches at this point. I mean, the bottom line is people try to make it sound like there's some sort of debate over vaccines, but the reality is they are safe and effective. That is just a fact. You know, whether or not people want to accept that fact is a different story, but there is really no debate about the truth of that statement. Um, So I think it is important that politicians create policies and make some of these decisions uh, that put that truth front and centre. Okay, now one other question for you, Dr. Smart. Ontario... And before Ontario, British Columbia, largely removing capacity restrictions. What are your thoughts? Again, a lot of people in Saskatchewan saying, hey, look, uh, Ontario, look at B.C. Why should we why should we do things differently? It's it becomes a tough sell. Or it can. Well, I think the situation in Saskatchewan is completely different. No, I understand that. Of this healthcare system. But crisis, its perception right? becomes so think- reality, right? No, for sure. But I think the people in that province, you know, obviously can see what's going on. It's been all over the news. I think, you know, the healthcare people there are speaking out very loudly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think what's important for people to, to appreciate is that we're not dealing with the exact same situation everywhere. Like you said, we know that. Um, but I think people need, you know, people in these provinces need to be able to look around and say, hey, what, what parts of the country have done better? And what's quite clear is the parts of the country that have been more cautious have removed uh, restrictions, you know, slowly, gradually, and then also been willing to pivot back on decisions when clearly what they were doing wasn't working. Um, Those are the provinces that are doing better. The provinces that have just gone, okay, you know, COVID's over, we're done, we're not going to put anything in place, are, of course, Alberta, Saskatchewan, have done the worst. Um, and we've also seen in both those provinces the most reluctance in terms of pivoting back and, and being like, okay, you know, we tried something, it didn't work. Let's put these things back in place and we'll try again when our vaccination rates are higher, our okay. hospitals are offloaded and spread is less, right? So I think we just, we need caution. You know, COVID shows us at every turn, we're, we're never better than it. We're never smarter than it. It's changing. The Delta variant was a total game changer in terms of transmissibility, but also in terms of making much younger people much sicker. So it's a different situation than we were before. And I think, you know, I understand it's frustrating for for people to be like, well, why do things keep changing? But that is the reality of a rapidly changing infectious disease. Um, And we are going to have to continue to pivot, change our minds, try things, be willing to be wrong and then try something different uh, in order to stay ahead of this. I uh, tweeted the other day, and this is the most fundamental way that I can explain inflation to myself. It's when you go to the gas station on the way to the grocery store and you don't fill up at either place. So in the last year, gasoline prices have gone up 33% in this country, and they're still rising. I mentioned yesterday, I paid $1.76.9 per liter for me. And uh, on other energy fronts, in Germany, gas shortages are such a concern 
the Germans are virtually pleading with Putin in Russia to increase gas exports, and Putin seems to be tying that into building a new pipeline, constructing a new pipeline across the Baltic Sea. Where do we stand on energy? Where do we stand on gasoline prices? Where are we headed? Dan McTague joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. He's the founder of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, thank you for the time. Energy is becoming significantly less affordable. And there are concerns about what's going to happen or what may happen as far as energy prices are concerned for Canadians this winter. This is not going to be a very pleasant winter, uh, Roy. And, of course, if people are upset at prices now, not just for gasoline and, of course, diesel and uh, what appears now to be the first tranche of increases for natural gas and propane, they're obviously going to be very upset when we actually start to get colder weather uh, as, a, as, a, uh, as a routine going forward across Canada. And, of course, when you look at uh, year-over-year increases, that may be one thing, but the fact that the world is not able to respond to the res- restoration of demand for all of these products, uh, I think it's a very it sets uh, uh, the future up for a very expensive and very frightening outcome. Most importantly, uh, could we yet see another doubling of energy costs? Uh, in other words, if you spent a thousand dollars last year for to keep yourself warm, will it be two thousand this year? Uh, if it uh, if you spent four thousand dollars last year on fuel to get to work and to uh, for other things, will it be eight thousand this year? Mm-hmm. All of these things are inflationary, and of course we've seen those numbers. Uh, as your guest yesterday had uh, quite eloquently spoke to. Uh, Canada's six major banks, and we'll be speaking with the vice president of RBC later about their $2 trillion report, transition report. Canada's six major banks have joined Mark Carney, the UN special envoy, on climate uh, in directing investment away from fossil fuels and into renewables. I want more information on that. Yet at the same time, Joe Biden is urging OPEC to increase its oil production in order to counter the dramatically rising price of gasoline and diesel, all of which the consumer will pay for directly at the pump or when purchasing goods delivered by ships, train, aircraft, and most of all, trucks. And in addition to that, the International Energy Agency uh, earlier this year stated that by 2060 or 2050 or 2060, I'm not sure which one it is, but the world will still be using 75 million barrels of oil a day. We have lots of that. We should be selling it internationally. Well, this is the grand uh, scheme that uh, so many have signed up for and jumped on board with. Um, and our banks uh, and, and insurance companies have done the same. And I think it's more because they've been goaded into doing this. They, they, they think they're going to miss the wave or be shamed or, uh, you know, uh, repudiated if they don't jump on board. But what they're really doing, and, and coming from the Royal Bank of Canada, I have worked media relations for them many, many years ago, well, you have the chair of that bank saying to the governor of the Bank of Canada, this inflation thing is not transitory. This is going to, this is far more serious. Jean Chrétien, just a few hours ago, opined on the same thing. The inflation and the amount of uh, deficit spending is reaching alarming proportions. Dan yesterday, Dan, yesterday we had a hedge fund CEO tell us they managed $4.5 billion. Tell us that same thing, this inflationary trend, yeah. it's not transitory. It's not transitory, but it's deliberate. If we want to force up the cost of an important pivotal, pivotal commodity like natural gas and oil, see the withdrawal of billions of dollars in the Canadian economy, and then have the bank say, we're not going to fund this. This is the problem that got us into this. I mean, whether it's the, uh, you refer to the International Energy Agency or Joe Biden, 
these guys talk from both sides of their mouths. They're saying, on the one hand, stop fossil fuels. On the other hand, oh, please, OPEC, make more. The fact is, we're not at the point where we can make that transition. Uh, unreliable energy, renewables are not there yet. They can't displace the importance of fossil fuels like oil and gas. And well, so let, me, let me just jump you, on that point. Yeah. Europe is experiencing a dramatic energy dearth. Wind farms, I was reading the other day, wind farms have underperformed, and Russia is being virtually begged by Germany to increase its gas exports, as I said a few minutes ago. Putin says Russia will, of course, oblige, but under his breath then I'm sure he's saying, don't interfere with our plans for a pipeline under the Baltic Sea to Germany. Yeah, and of course that brings in the whole geopolitical issue of Ukraine. Are we basically going to go to countries that have a terrible track record on on rights, as well as uh, countries that uh, geopolitically represent a a real danger to our freedoms or way of life, because we're too distracted uh, by trinkets like uh, you know windmills and, and, and solar energy. They're all wonderful thoughts, but what happens when you don't have enough light? What happens when you don't have wind? We've put our eggs in one basket, and I, I really caution the Canadian banks, because I'm coming after you. Make no mistake, if you're going to go and throttle something that is our number one economic engine in this world, because it's trendy and it's cute and a bunch of folks are getting together uh, to sit back, uh, you know, Perrier and uh, eat canapes in Glasgow, I suggest maybe you go up the street, maybe down to Britain, and figure out just how bad it is, where not only have they had to start up their coal plants, they've actually had to beg the rest of the world for more natural gas. Otherwise, they will literally freeze over the next several months. So, folks, it's really time, I think, for leaders and opinion leaders and others to get real. Uh, We have aspirational goals. That's great. But let's not draw these lines in the sand, and let's stop doing untold damage uh, to the oil and gas sector in this country. I think it's pretty clear what uh, the Alberta government was able to demonstrate this week to the Allen report, that there has been a multi-billion dollar use of charities, foundations, which have no interest in poverty uh, being used uh, because there is no scrutiny, there is no legislation, there is no regulation, using the money to basically throttle jobs and capital from this country. And I think that's uh, that's a shame. We're all going to pay for it this year, Roy. And look, yeah. well, uh, $200 a barrel isn't far away. Neither is $2 a liter. Well, Um, 2016, Mr. Trudeau said at a town hall, it's time to phase out the oil sands. He tried to retract that, at least somewhat, but it slipped out, and uh, that's his intent. Now, look, Dan, I'm not against windmill energy. I'm not against solar energy. I'm not against an improved energy electrical grid. But what's the cost, and what happens in the interim? What happens to Canadians between then between now and then, and the time between now and then, the time between 2021 and 2050, isn't very long. And we have, we, have a, um, we have an unsteady, I won't say unstable, an unsteady federal political reality, and we live in an unstable world. <laughs> if, we're putting our, if we're putting our eggs, if the United States, not we, if the United States is putting its eggs in the OPEC basket, good luck. Well... They had 13 million barrels of oil produced every day. They're only at 11.3 million barrels. So they now have to backfill that with Canadian oil. Sorry, they block pipelines, as have Canadians, by the way. So they're relying now more and more on Russians. Look, the laws of physics and thermodynamics do not allow us to, you know, to say, hey, fossil fuels can simply be whipped away. And for politicians not to recognize that shows a significant amount of uh, being out of touch, I think, with the reality. But look, it's not something I have to argue. It's not something you and I have to discuss, as we've done many times in the past, Roy. This is going to become self-evident this winter. This will be the winter of, the, of, of our discontent. And if politicians are too busy trying to be uh, woke and cool, 
at the same time, consumers are, are being hammered in this country and our economy well, uh, fails to respond. We're in Dan, big trouble, and so are they. Dan, my example, you're going to the grocery store, but you go to the gas station first, and you can't fill up at either. God, yes. Right? Yes. You can't afford going it. Going to two rebates. It's called inflation. Two energy rebates. I and don't you remember? You yeah. remember in the early 80s, 18% interest rates. I had an email from a listener yesterday saying that in 1981, she bought a truck, and the interest rate the bank quoted her was 24.5%. August of 1981, I was working with the housing minister in Ottawa when people were walking to our constituency office, throwing their keys at us, saying, you're the ones responsible for this. Do Canadians really not realize? Perhaps they don't. We've taken, you know, 15, 20, 30 years of good economic performance uh, that has caused a lot of people to think, well, maybe we're bored. We should ought to look at these things. But again, I come to our banks. Don't join in the chorus and the parade. You're going to disappoint a lot of people. And wait till those mortgages come due. Because if we start looking at higher interest rates as a response to the government not being able to fulfill its obligations, people are out of work, can't afford, it's only a matter of time before that domino falls and we get that stagflation. And I worked for the Royal Bank in 84, dealing with the leftovers of, uh, of years and generations of high interest rates. It's not something we want to go back to, Roy, but it's right in front of us and we need to really collectively wake up. So let's talk about gasoline for a moment. 33% increase in the last year. Uh, and, you know, when you, when you fill up, what I did this morning as I was driving, I looked at uh, the, mile, the miles, kilometers I've been driving. I looked at how many liters per 100 kilometers my car gets. It's all, you know, displayed on the dashboard. And I was doing the calculations, and I thought, okay, so to get from here to there cost me 30 bucks. To get from here to there cost me 20 bucks. To get from here to there is another 25 bucks. I'm over $150 and I hardly gone anywhere. So... What's happening with the price of gasoline? Why is it up 33%? Is it, is it international forces that we have nothing to do with, can't control? Is it gouging by oil companies? And is it more expensive to refine premium gasoline than it is to refine regular gas? Uh, there's a lot there. But I would say the three things is, first of all, recognize that uh, Canada's unwillingness to produce enough oil, along with a lot of other countries around the world, has left the country, uh, has left the world with a shortage. It doesn't really matter how big or how small the recovery in terms of demand is uh, a shortage is a shortage. And so if you're producing a lot less oil than you have at any point in the past and you can't get the capital, compliments of uh, move by Mark Carney's of this world and their so-called ESG, the Environment, Social and Governance Mandates, followed now apparently by the six banks in Canada, which I think is uh, tragic and it is uh, short-sighted. But beyond that, uh, that's the main reason why oil has gone from $45 a barrel to $84, $85 a barrel for WTI. Then you have the second factor, which is a weak Canadian dollar. And the banks need to understand this as well as their economists. In the past, when we saw $85 oil, we also saw the Canadian dollar trade at par with the U.S. greenback. So that's no longer happening because we're not selling enough oil. And we don't have the infrastructure to sell the rest of the world to the oil to the rest of the world. That's where they need it. So that means everything, Roy. Everything we purchase which is denominated in U.S. dollars, whether it's made here or not, uh, is uh, we've lost our purchasing power. We've lost our mojo, if you will. Uh, the third and final thing, carbon taxes and other regulatory factors have also contributed mightily to the cost of fuel. Uh, when we last saw these prices, uh, you know, breaking records across the country, an average of $1.48 per litre, we've never been there before, uh, you know, we, uh, we saw taxes in most jurisdictions were substantially less. And we start, of course, with a 10 cent a litre carbon tax. That means here in eastern Canada, uh, you know, 8.84 cents a litre plus GST or HST, I should say. So that's about 10 cents a litre. And that, too, is contributing mightily uh, between the dollar, 
shortage in oil deliberately caused by green initiatives and, of course, uh, these taxes. That's why we're paying an extra 30 cents a liter. What about the refining? I need an answer to this. Does it cost more to refine a liter of premium gas than regular gas? Uh, it uh, About nine cents a liter is what the difference is of wholesale. Probably about five to six cents because there's different products used in different forms of distillation. Uh, the bottom line is alkalites versus uh, uh, um, versus uh, uh, products like butane. Uh, there's a lot of difference that goes into the production of both, and uh, it just depends on the kind of distillery you have. Mm-hmm. What we are looking at, though, is a lot of gas stations are making money selling regular gasoline. Their money's being made selling premium. Why? Right. Well, I know every day it's it's no more than ten cents a liter for the gas stations, and so they're getting thirty-two, which means they're making right. twenty cents a liter. Right. I got it. So do you see, final question for you, do you see us in a situation where given the world as we understand it today and projecting as much as we possibly can, again, understanding what we understand today, do you see us getting to a point by 2050 or 2060 where renewables will um, be able to provide energy that we require to live our lives and do so at a manageable cost? No, I don't. Uh, but I'm not, uh, you know, I have not seen an invention that can do that yet. We can talk about these things in the context of, you know, little programs and things, but we know that, re, you know, renewables have, are, have not and cannot displace, unless we're talking nuclear, unless we're talking electrification, which should be not $2 trillion, as uh, Mr. Stackhouse and others would suggest, but several trillions of dollars uh, and in a cold country. Uh, you'd probably be looking at a circumstance where, Unless it's nuclear or small forms of nuclear, I don't see this uh, as, as any way possible. In fact, it takes a lot more energy, uh, including fossil fuels, to build an electric vehicle than it does to build a, a, a conventional internal combustion engine, which uses a lot less fuel. It's not an advocacy for one or the other, but there was a time and a place where I worked uh, for the largest uh, manufacturer in the world, Toyota Canada, Toyota Lexus. So I kind of know what I'm talking about. And so for that reason, uh, I think electric vehicles are a long way off. I just don't see... Uh, the law of physics being able to permit uh, the existing menu of renewable energies to displace the energy needs of the world, which are growing, not diminishing. I want to say one more thing to you. Sure. Comparing a billion to a trillion, okay? Because Elon Musk could be the world's first trillionaire, we found out. (laughs) Here's a little statistic for you. A billion-dollar bills laid... I'm reading somebody else's writing. A billion-dollar bills laid end-to-end would stretch 96,900 miles, winding around the Earth nearly four times. A trillion dollars laid in the same manner would stretch for 96,906,656 miles, a distance farther than the sun. That's how much money Elon Musk is going to have. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.